And if it takes me an extra two, three, five years to get to where I need to be, that's okay because I have to think about what is it that I did in between that really pushed me to my final goal. You're listening to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast, the only leadership podcast run by undergraduate students dedicated to helping undergraduate students lead in diverse fields. From people in diplomacy to entertainment, from CEOs to student leaders, we feature people from all walks of life. It's all part of the mission. Here at the Piscina Leadership Institute, we make leaders better. Hello, and welcome to the Seton Hall Undergraduate Leaders Podcast. My name is Kaida Jesus, and today I'll be your host. Today, I'm talking to Jackie Liu, senior at Seton Hall studying public relations and member of the Bacino Leadership Institute. She's entered at a variety of places, including Jam City and Seton Hall's Pirate Radio, and recently had the chance to lead the initiative Hall and Green, which aimed to reduce 30% of Seton Hall's plastic waste. Now she comes to us representing the Lymphoma Research Foundation, seeking to educate others on symptoms and how to support others that already have it. Jackie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me today, Kai. The first thing that I'd like to start with is something that I know that I've been struggling with. So in high school, we were told kind of exactly how to do each project, how they were done, exactly what people wanted. But now that we're just like a little bit older, like two or three years older, we're giving complete creative control of some of our projects that we do. How did you manage that shift and how have you increased your confidence in making these sort of creative decisions? Well, it certainly has been very hard especially because I am a very indecisive person. And when you're put on the spot and you have to make a decision for a team that relies on you and also is there to hear your perspective on things, you really have to know what it is that you're doing. You have to be confident in whatever decision that you're making. And you also have to be ready to take accountability, whether that decision leads to good or bad results. So one thing that has truly helped me is just being, you know, prepared enough, just making, doing my research, making sure that I know when I need to know and just having all my ground cover. So when the time to make a decision comes, I am confident to say this is the right choice. I know that a lot of people are indecisive. So when you're dealing with that issue, are you seeking to change that trait entirely or work around it? Um, ideally I would like to work on it. (laughs) Ideally, I would like to be more confident in myself and so on. But I believe with experience and also with, with the years and with furthering my career, that would come naturally rather than me trying to force it. And putting myself in the uncomfortable situations is what eventually is going to make me more comfortable with being less indecisive. So that means seeking for positions or tasks where you have to make a choice, where you're kind of forced to make one every day at least. For you, it's not about completely solving the problem right away. It's about the journey. Exactly, yes. Ideally, we we want to solve a problem. We want to reach our end goal, but through it all, it's the journey where you learn the most. I'm going to talk about the Lymphoma Research Foundation a little bit more closely. When you take on a client, does it matter to you whether you line, whether they line up with your moral values or is it something like it's a, it's a job, you leave the job at home? And how does the Lymphoma Research Foundation line up with the values that you have? Definitely. I think when I take on a job, a lot of 
my principles and values have to align with the clients because I really put my passion into the work that I'm doing. And if I can resonate with the client's mission, their culture, or even their vision, then it is very hard for me to create something meaningful for them. And in this case, the Lymphoma Research Foundation, my team and I didn't have exactly the choice to pick them as our client. But as we have learned more about what it is that they do, what they stand for, we have been able to come up with some really creative ideas and we have been able to execute them to transmit the values of the Lymphoma Research Foundation. So some people don't really get to choose which clients they have. They're just handed clients. How do you suggest that those kinds of people gain that passion to do a good job? Right. So it was hard for me at first to find a value that I aligned myself with, especially because I, I wasn't sure what lymphoma was. I never had lymphoma. None of my friends or family members had lymphoma either, which, you know, I'm thankful for, obviously. And it was very hard for me to relate to their mission. So what really helped me was, once again, going back to being prepared. You know, me and my team did, did the research together. We, you know, found out what lymphoma meant, you know, what it was, you know, what type of population does it affect. And just learning all these new facts helped me understand how important maybe it wasn't for me, but to others. And that itself helped me find the, the passion that I was looking for. We've been talking about these values and the values that align with you and your and the Lipova Research Foundation. But what are those values? What what resonates to you most about this cause? Well, the main objectives I will say that we had were simply to win the Bateman competition, which you know, the Lymphoma Research Foundation was a client that they picked for their competition this year. So that was our main objective. And when we looked into what the Lymphoma Research Foundation stood for or who they serve, it was mostly funding research and helping current lymphoma patients because even up to this date, we still are not sure what exactly causes lymphoma. And what really surprised me is that lymphoma actually affects young people the most. You know, people between the ages of 15 to 39 and that really impacted me because I'm thinking, okay, it can be anyone at Seton Hall University. It can be anyone living in South Orange Town. It can be any high schooler. It can be any teenager that could have lymphoma right now, and they wouldn't know it. So that really shocked me and made me really want to dive into it. So I think you mentioned Bateman somewhere in there. Can you talk more about what that is for our listeners who don't know about it? Bateman is the national premier case study that is pretty much implemented by PRSA, which happens to be the Public Relations Society of America. So Bateman is the national premier case study that is implemented and pretty much sponsored and, and so forth by PRSA, which happens to be the Public Relations Society of America. At CN Hall and at other different colleges and universities, there are chapters of PRSSA. And as part of PRSSA, we put together a Bateman team. And for Bateman, only seniors usually compete and you have to meet certain requirements. You have to meet um, certain academic standings and so forth. And it is optional, as I mentioned before. 
So for Bateman, they usually put out a client and they choose it every year. So this year is the Lymphoma Research Foundation. And they give you a time frame of about uh, one month. And during that month, you have to implement a series of public relations events or overall a campaign that meets the objectives of the client. This year's objectives is mainly to educate our community on lymphoma and the available resources for it. Th that's it. There's no guidance exactly. There's no telling you what to do. There's no telling you what you should do. It's all about what you can come up with as a team and what you can do with that. There's also a budget. Usually it's $300 for the whole month. And you have to use that budget wisely as well. But what matters the most is for you to accomplish those objectives. It can be a combination of multimedia channels, such as newspapers. It can be from you know, radio stations, social media to in-person events. And us with Bateman, we've really been focusing on accomplishing such objective. For example, we have been able to put up a poster in a lot of the South Orange business stores where it says, you know, we stand in support of lymphoma. We, and it has a QR code that links you to information about it. We have been able to get placements in the patch and also in Essex Daily News as well, which gives us more coverage and also helps spread the education aspect of the campaign. We have been tabling throughout campus this week, handing out our red ribbons in honor of lymphoma, handing out informational materials. We have been running simultaneous social media challenges where students can participate for the option to win a gift card while also learning about lymphoma. We're also in the process of putting together more in-person events. It can be from cookie decorating to spin classes. And we have pretty much done a lot of these events in the mix of multimedia channels that I've mentioned. And our next big event is actually at the Prudential Center in the senior night of the men's basketball team where we'll be playing Georgetown. And for that, we have our tabling materials ready to go. And as well, you know, I'm, I'm going to be handling a lot of the filming material because we want to create also a video campaign. So it has been definitely a good mix of multimedia channels as well as in-person events to try to achieve this objective. And one of our main objectives for this campaign overall is to have at least 50,000 impressions. And so far we have gotten about 25,000. So we're definitely halfway there and there's about two weeks left to the campaign. So sometimes when you're young and busy, you find it hard to save some time to focus on yourself. What strategies do you use to make sure that you're not neglecting yourself, especially now that we're talking about a big health issue here? Right, I think it's very important to have those days where you have literally no, no phone, no technology, no, you try to not focus on work and you're just by yourself. To me personally, I find it very peaceful when I'm able to just walk around maybe like town or go to the park. And I really take that time to enjoy myself and think about how it is that I'm feeling, you know, throughout that day or how I felt throughout the past week and just take the moment to look at myself spiritually and also physically. And 
when you do that, you really cleanse yourself from like all this stress that you've been having throughout the week, maybe. And when you look at yourself physically, you also have a chance to, you know, take a look at all these symptoms, you know, because we have so many uh, diseases and sicknesses that most people don't notice until it's very late. So it's very important to also take the time to maybe do a self-test every so often. You mentioned about just unplugging, getting away from your phone. And we have so many hobbies that have just shifted to being online. What are some of your favorite unplugged hobbies to get out of that stressful mindset? I like anything that I can create with my hands. I, even if I don't know how to do it, I've never done it. I like the chance to learn. So I'll hundred percent take on knitting. Like I want to knit a scarf. I don't know why I want to knit one, one of those big blankets. I think it would be pretty funny and very cozy too. I want to, um, I don't know, paint like a ceramic art piece. So anything that I can do with my hands, I feel like it's a, it's a very different step from an online hobby. It's just so refreshing and makes me feel productive overall. You talked about creating, just making stuff with your hands. And essentially your job is creating. Do you ever get tired and burnt out of making stuff? And how do you deal with that burnout? Yeah, I think I, I call it a creative burnout. And I definitely feel crazy burned out when I'm, you know, not, I wouldn't say forced, but when I'm, when I kind of have to create a lot of, like, let's say posters back to back, you know, for example, I was a PR chair for one of the clubs here at CN Hall. And my job was to create the posters every week to advertise our activities and events. And it just came down to a point where I turned to a formula so I kept using the same template, just changing up like a few things, moving things out of place instead of doing it as I would usually like to, you know, which is from scratch, from being inspired by what the event was. And it just came down to very, to, to a wasteland of, of posters, if you, if you must. They all looked the same. They were very generic. So I felt very burned out that I couldn't be as creative as I wanted to be. So I definitely experienced that. And also with writing too. You know, right? I write for my major, I write for the Setonian, so on. And all the writing sometimes burns me out and my mind just goes blank. I, I forget how to write completely. I'll just stare at the screen and forget my words. So how do you balance creating stuff for yourself versus creating stuff for others? That's a, that's a, that's a hard question because when I'm creating stuff for others, I don't really have much of a choice because you know, either it's for a class, either, you know, it's because they really need it. So because I'm always creating for others, I don't allow myself to, to create things that are for myself. And that really shows because I haven't been able to create for myself in a very long time. And that's why it's important to unplug some days, just say no to a few things and give that, give that, creativity and that passion to something that you want to do saying no to things is probably a really hard thing I know I struggle with it I know that there's probably a lot of people listening through a bit how do you build up that confidence or just like that energy or strength to say no even if you're really interested in something yeah I think that most people really struggle with saying no and I've seen the 
a way that people would try to say no is by using an excuse maybe saying or making something up saying I don't know I have to clean all my dishes by 2 p.m so I can't really help you with your thing at 3 p.m and I think that is not necessarily healthy that you shouldn't have to create an excuse to put yourself first so the best way to do it is to simply look at the person and be honest with them and tell them, hey, I would like to help, but I really can't do it right now. And I think that, you know, at least to the other person shows that you, you wanted to help them, but in reality, you just have to put yourself first and they'll understand. So it's about honesty and then just like being clear with both yourself and the person that you want to, that you're setting this boundary. Yeah, correct. Correct. So you were working on a team of about three people to promote the Lymphoma Research Foundation. What has been your biggest challenge working on a team and how did you move past it? Right. So I think the first thing to consider is that all of us, all four of us, we chose to be in the team. We, um, the competition is not required. It's it's optional. So we all chose to participate in the Bateman competition. So that's the one thing that we all have to keep in mind. And it has been very challenging because the competition itself, it's an opportunity for all of us to showcase what we have learned in the classroom and also to implement our skills. And with that said, it it's hard because all of us have different schedules. We're struggling a lot with finding meeting times. And also we have to take into account the different, the different mindsets that we have when it comes to how should we approach a certain idea or an event. So it has been very challenging. However, we have been able to make it work by using our strengths to our favor. So let's say if two people on the team are very experienced with social media, are very experienced with designing stuff, then they have teamed up together to handle those aspects of the campaign. And then for those that are better with talking to others um, or just writing, then they have taken on to a different task and it's more of a divide and conquer. And I know that's something I also have trouble with and some of our listeners might have trouble with too, is just like, letting go of that tasks, delegating them, letting other people perform it to the quality that they can achieve rather than a quality that you know that you can achieve. How do you get past this? Right. I think having been an IDT leader, of course, where you, where you have the ability to lead the team however you want it to be led and people pretty much listen to you. So the quality of the work is up to your standards it can be very hard to fully trust other person and just trust that they're going to do, do it the same way that you did, which can be both good and bad. But then again, all of us, we pretty much took the same classes. We had the same good education and we had the same professors. So there isn't a reason for us to not trust each other. And we're all very experienced. So it's more of a, of a trusting in that sense of, okay, you know, let's gather together. What if we um, see some samples of our works, you know, from each other, and then we provide our constructive feedback. And from there, that's how you build the trust. Do you, you allow each other to provide that feedback without fear of, you know, of 
hurting someone or you feeling hurt, knowing that it is an open space and they're and then you're all there to grow together. So you mentioned the IDTs. Uh, for those of us listening that don't quite that aren't quite in the know, it stands for interdisciplinary team projects, which is something that the Bacino leadership handles. It basically is a basically a group of 10 students that work to complete a project that is self-selected by a student themselves. Can you talk a little bit about your experience leading and these one of these IDTs and what your greatest lesson was from doing that? Of course. So looking back to my freshman year in the Leadership Institute, I was one of the quiet people. I didn't really speak up. Um, I never really participated during our sessions because I felt very intimidated by the people that were in, in class. And when I was placed in my first IDT, I was not the leader. I was actually, um, it was actually Mary Grace. And I thought she was great. She, she held really good control of the room. She was able to include everyone. And that really taught me something about how leadership should be. And she really made me feel very included. And because of that, I was, I was really enthusiastic about participating in my, in that IDT. So when sophomore year came, I decided to pitch my own idea and take it into account how I was, how I felt and how my leader made me feel when I was a team member. I took that into account when leading my team to make sure that everyone felt the same sense of being included and being listened to and just knowing that their comments are taken into serious consideration. For you, when you lead a team, it's about making sure that the other people feel just as empowered as you are. Is that correct? Correct. Absolutely. So um, the IDT project that you did was the Hull and Green initiative that I talked about earlier. Can you talk about why you chose to do that sort of thing? Right. So I am a public relations major. I have no full knowledge about the environment, STEM, or any science. In fact, I was not the brightest in science, but I play this game a few years ago online. It's called footprintcalculator.org. And it asks you questions about your lifestyle, such as, you know, what type of food do you eat? How many times, you know, do you travel by car? And, you know, how, how many hours do you spend on a plane every year? And then it would tell you your results. And your results would say something along the lines of, Jackie, based on your results, we would each need 3.7 planets if everyone lived like you. And I think that game made such a big impact on me, made me feel very self-conscious about how I was affecting planet Earth. And since then, I've been trying to advocate for greener alternatives, you know, on campus. And even on my job search, I look for companies that are corporate socially responsible, because if not, then I would not align myself with those principles and I would not want to work with them or for them. Okay, so you've had a pretty packed February. You were even um, promoting the Lymphoma Research Foundation this entire month. And public relations is a pretty social business. How do, like, how do you maintain that social battery? Yeah, so a lot of it, it's seeing the immediate impact that you're doing. That's what keeps my social battery going on. And definitely February has been very packed. So one of my main tasks in the team is doing a lot of the writing aspects of it. So I've been in contact with journalists from New Jersey, from the New Jersey media. 
I've been trying to get placements in the newspapers. Now we're aiming for radio stations as well as public television channels. And we're really trying to get the buzz going. And in addition to that, I've also been talking to several people on campus, whether it be students, clubs, organizations, and a lot of it has been uh, very socially based in a sense, because uh, like you said, public relations, it's literally about public relations. You have to talk to the public. You have to help them understand why it is that you're doing your campaign and what about it makes it so important. So seeing the immediate impact that I've had on some of the people, especially we had a girl that sent us a DM saying, I'm so grateful that this club exists on campus because one of my relatives had lymphoma and you know it's great that you guys are raising awareness. So seeing the immediate impact of it is very rewarding and that's what has been keeping us going. Okay, and I wanna hear it from a public relations major it's an undercovered topic that I think on this podcast, and it's like public speaking. So people take it for granted that leaders can public speak, but not everyone is born with that gift. How did you, were you, is it is public speaking or being good at it something that you're born with or something that you develop? And how did you develop it? Or how did you like, or were you just born with it? I think a big part of it is developing it. Developing it can be a very, very tough journey especially because I am not used to public speaking. I didn't even know English until I came to the United States when I was 16 years old. So I just learned it recently, like in the last few years. And it was very rough in the aspect that obviously because I didn't know the language, I would mess up in some words. I still do sometimes. I don't know how to pronounce them correctly. Or, you know, I get stuck in the words. I have a lot of T's specifically. And one of my biggest fears was that people would make fun of how I said things. But instead, I was encouraged because a lot of them, you know, didn't laugh at me, but said, oh, you know, that's that's actually how we say it. And then they'll help me try to pronounce it. They'll teach me different ways that people have said it to. And I felt like that was very encouraging. And that has been developing my confidence in public speaking. So to go back to your question it's definitely developed and not necessarily born with it. You mentioned that you basically just learned English relative to like when most people do, because most people obviously learn or most people in America learn when they're like six or seven or like maybe two or three. You learned it five years ago. And now you're in this like insanely communicative major where you're talking in English all day. Do you ever get afraid that you're going to just say the wrong thing or have something that you say be misconstrued? And how do oh you just deal with that pressure? Yes, absolutely. Um, I feel the most pressure when I am writing, actually, because I, you know, I've interned at different places and a lot of the writing materials actually get published or they go through my managers who have been in industry for many, many years. They experts pretty much and one of my biggest things when I'm writing is that I still get confused with where to place on and and at (laughs) so it can be very embarrassing especially when you're handing in professional materials that you still cannot differentiate between those three um, words a big part of it has been that my managers have been very encouraging and you know they obviously corrected me 
and they have taken their time to explain to me the differences rather than simply telling me, oh, go figure it out or go find out or tell me you should know this by now. So I, that's one thing that I greatly, greatly appreciate. Are you ever afraid that you're not going to be taken seriously for, for having English as your second language? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. And it's, it's hard to explain, you know, because sometimes I get these comments on, you know, when I interview with people or when I talk to some people and they always tell me, oh my gosh, your English is so good for, you know, for you not being from here. And I don't know how to take that as either as a compliment or as a, an attack because it makes me feel self-conscious. It makes me feel as if I need to improve on myself even more. So that makes me think that people might not be taking me seriously as I am. So what's the pointing out of it? Like if they just like said nothing, then it would make you actually feel that you were speaking English well, is that it? Yeah, I, I believe that when someone points it out, when they say, oh, your English is so good, you almost have no accent. It's the word almost that gets me and it makes me really reflect and make me very self-conscious. And it's especially when I'm, let's say, speaking to someone else or speaking to the public and I know there's a word that I'm not really good at pronouncing. I just have to like go through my mind really quick and find a synonym for it that I could that I could use to explain my ideas. For those people that are going into these extremely communicative um, majors, journalism, public relations, English, et cetera, et cetera, and have English as a second language, what advice do you have for them? Don't be afraid to show that you're not from America. Actually, it is an accomplishment and it is very, very hard to learn a new language. And I think people care more that you are trying rather than you rather than you putting up a front that, yeah, I know it all. And definitely don't be afraid to ask for help. There have been many times where I didn't understand the context of a word, maybe during a meeting, maybe doing something professional. And I will actually raise my hand and ask them, can you explain what you mean by what you said in that context and it might have been the most obvious thing to most people but because I asked and they actually took the time to explain it I got a better understanding of it and that really stuck with me so definitely don't be afraid to say that you didn't understand something or ask someone to repeat what they said because that's going to go a long way so if I'm getting what you're saying correctly throughout this interview it seems to me that your philosophy is kind of about it's it's on the journey and about the road that it takes to get to that conclusion. Are you ever afraid that you won't reach quote unquote that conclusion in time? Or are you just not worried about your own pace? I think I'm just going at my own pace. And what, you know, overall, whatever comes easy, easy goes as well. And if it takes me an extra two, three, five years to get to where I need to be. That's okay because I have to think about what is it that I did in between that really pushed me to my final goal? Or did I actually, you know, or maybe I achieved that goal in less time, but wasn't meaningful what I did in between. So overall, it is all about the journey and what it is that you're doing. Okay. 
Uh, so I want to talk about another sort of issue I, I guess I'd see in public relations, and that's that people talk about the dangers of both social media and assigning numbers to your self-worth. And in a sense, PR kind of does both. How do you keep the results of your work from damaging your self-esteem? Right. So in PR, you know, you can create the best, like, let's say the best social media post you have, you know, ever made. You, you think, oh, my God, it's going to be a hit this time. It has the, you know, brightest colors. It has a really funny caption. It can have it all. But sometimes it, it's just not going to work. And you have to understand that it's not about the quality of your work necessarily, but you have to go back and think about the audience that you're trying to reach because PR is not about being the brightest. It's not about being the catchiest. It's about understanding what your audience needs and not exactly about what you want. So you have to take a step back and think, okay, who is it that I'm trying to reach and what is it that they want? Can I, do I know this audience? Can I relate to them? Or do I know someone that can speak for them? So going back to your question, you just have to understand that it is not necessarily about the quality of your work, but it's about who your audience is and what's the best way to reach them and not you. It's not about being the best. It's about making that connection between you and other people. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So is there any other advice that you wish you would have heard before going into PR? Hmm. That's also a very good question. And I think a good advice that I want before going to PR is definitely knowing how to make those connections, not just with the audience, but with your network, because I struggle with that a lot. I struggle with maintaining relationships, actually. And in PR, it's very important that you maintain these relationships with, let's say, even your coworkers, with journalists, because they're the ones that are going to cover your story. And also making those connections genuine. And they have to be beyond just work, which I struggle with because I'm not very good at small talk. And maintaining connections doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be good at small talk but it does mean that you have to also be able to relate to the other person, understand them, and genuinely connect with them. So if there's something that a lot of people hate, it is actually small talk. You said that you you kind of like bypass it, if, that, if I'm getting what you're saying correctly. How do you make a connection without small talk or by using as little small talk as possible? Right, so usually, you know, when... When people tell me something, let's say they tell me about their day or so forth or something that happened, I don't necessarily ask a general question, but if, you know, I find one thing that I'm genuinely interested in about what they said, and then I'll ask a follow-up question about that thing, because one, I was genuinely interested in hearing more about it. And two, that also prompts to different questions and topics and that has really helped me form very meaningful connections. Just genuinely being interested in it and not asking because, because. Okay, so just don't be fake. Be like only connect with people, only make a network with people that you're actually interested in talking to. Right, yes. 
So thank you once again for joining me on the show. I do have one last question for you. And that is, if you wanted the listeners to take one thing from this episode, what would it be? It is all about the journey, as we've mentioned throughout. Don't worry. It's it's not a race. It's not, is there's no trophy to be won, but it's all about what you're learning at your own pace. And if it's truly benefiting you, there's no point in comparing yourself to others because, you know, where others may exceed, you may fail and where others may fail, you may exceed. So it's all about taking your own pace and doing it correctly rather than rushing through it. Okay, so thank you once again for joining me on this show. To our listeners, we'll see you next episode. On behalf of everyone at the Pasita Leadership Institute, I'd like to thank the podcast team, 89.5 FM WSOU, for allowing us to use their facilities, and you for listening. Follow us online at www.shu.edu backslash leadership, on Instagram at Pasita Leaders, and on Twitter at SHU Leadership. At Seton Hall, we make leaders better.